This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Now and Not Yet. Pressing in when you're waiting, wanting, and restless for more. Written and narrated by best-selling author Ruth Cho Simons and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Hi, welcome to the Finding Holy Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Hales, and here at the Finding Holy Podcast, it is our aim to bring you great conversations, thoughtful ideas with leaders, activists, artists, professors, and pastors to help you connect the dots between the things that really matter and your everyday holy life. I know 2020 has been a total ride for most of us. And so I wanted to begin season four talking about all of these things. We have been inundated with how do we respond to a global pandemic and an economic crisis? How do we respond to political polarization and racism and so many things that feel like they are not just ideas out there, but they are affecting our every moment and our waking hours. So join me for season four, Living Faithfully in an Upside Down World. And remember to stick around because at the end of every episode, not only will you get to hear my guest laundry routines, but you will also get to have one small step to take with you into your everyday holy life. My guest this week is David W. Swanson. He's the pastor of New Community Covenant Church, a multicultural congregation in Chicago's Bronzeville neighborhood. He helps lead New Community Outreach, a nonprofit that collaborates with the community to reduce sources of trauma and speaks around the country on topics of racial justice and reconciliation. He is the author of the book, Rediscipling the White Church, From Cheap Diversity to True Solidarity. And so if you're looking for a few handholds on conversations around justice and race, especially if you are someone from a majority white culture, this will be a great, gentle, hope-infused conversation. Listen in to my conversation with David. All right, friends, it's Ashley Hales here on the Finding Holy Podcast. And today I have the enormous pleasure to chat with David Swanson, who's the recent author of Rediscipling the White Church. Thanks for being here. Thanks a lot for having me. Oh, it's great. Well, one thing I just loved when I started reading your book was, you know, you talked about this idea of race and diversity, not as really a diversity issue or a justice issue, but as a discipleship issue. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yes. So tell us a little bit about that distinction and why does that matter? Yeah, I think it matters a lot for a few different reasons. Uh, One, I try to make the case in the book that uh, we are discipled racially in this country. Mm -hmm. Discipleship is not a uniquely Christian idea. Mm -hmm. Uh, We think very intentionally about it as Christians, right? Right. But there's lots of forces that shape us and mold us and point us in different directions. And I, I think if we take seriously the landscape of this country, we have to acknowledge that we were discipled in a in a racial way as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I just think that many white churches have not acknowledged that have yeah. not grasped that we 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 see other things that disciple us that 
are pointing us away from the kingdom of God. Right. But we've not reckoned with race for the most yeah. part. And so we've left it undisturbed. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's deeply problematic. So that's that's one reason. The other reason is though over the past, I don't know, 15-ish years, there's been a real focus on intentionally multiracial churches in some, right. you know, areas of, yeah. of American Christianity. And I pastor one of those churches. So I love the multiracial church. Yeah. But I think we've made a mistake of thinking that somehow by adding some diversity to our culturally white churches, we are somehow addressing the real issues of racial inequity and injustice. And we're not. You can mm-hmm. have a diverse church that does nothing to disturb the kind of underlying causes of, of racial injustice. And so, mm-hmm. I, I want to suggest that by thinking about discipleship, we can actually um, consider the racial discipleship that, that has misformed us. Uh, we can also begin discipling people in a new direction. And what's really good about this to me is that it means every white church has a really important role to play, right? Mm-hmm. This is not just work for the multiracial church to do, right, or if right. your church is in a city center or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, every white congregation gets to be a part of the reconciliation of the body of Christ for the mm-hmm. glory of God. That, that to me is pretty exciting, actually. Oh, it is. It is. Um, what do you do in this moment of time with just like the fears, particularly mm-hmm. of of many churches who tend to be culturally white, and maybe we can unpack what that means, but um, that, you know, this issue of racial justice is taking away from the gospel. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a pretty common right. concern in some yep. in some spaces. Yeah. And... I would I just love what, to have you answer that question instead of me. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm sure, yeah, you've gotten yeah. it before too. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, what, what really has helped me over the years, so the past 10 years, uh, you know, I've lived in a, a relatively diverse neighborhood on the south side of Chicago, which is predominantly African-American mm-hmm. section of the city. The area where our church is in is about 95% black. So, all, all the other churches in our neighborhood are African-American churches. Those are my mm-hmm. peers. Those are my friends. Those are my colleagues. Yeah. And so, what that means is that I've had a front row sort of education and, and I was a discipleship. to seeing what it looks like to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, to invite people to give their lives to Jesus. Uh, This this expectation that that salvation is available through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Mm -hmm. simultaneously understand that when we proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God, we are expecting uh, to invite people into lives that are pursuing righteousness and justice and mercy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, That when Jesus sort of initiates his ministry in 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 the gospel of Luke, right, by proclaiming these kind of set captives is free, proclaim the year of Jubilee, etc., that that is a part of the gospel that we preach. And so, mm-hmm. I think it's an, actually, that question is a uniquely white Christian question yeah. that betrays the, the segregated nature of our faith, right? Like, right. it shows that we haven't had access to this much broader experience within the body of Christ of people who love the gospel, preach the gospel, invite people into Mm -hmm. salvation, Mm -hmm. and yet at the same time, uh, pursue justice and are addressing places of of inequity, both because of their lived realities, right? Like there's, there's more uh, areas of, of injustice in right. my section of the city, but also because of how they've read the scriptures, of how they see the the kind of holistic nature of the gospel and how mm-hmm. big the gospel is to address every area of life. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I, when I hear that question, what I hear is a, that that's that gospel is too small. Yeah, it's you know the, this idea of like somehow you're you're having to choose one or the other. Right. I actually, think the gospel. I think what Jesus accomplished on the cross was so big, so powerful, so all comprehensive that of course it has to include justice as yeah. well. Yeah, 
And what's important, I think, too, is that I think for a lot of us who grew up in kind of white evangelical spaces, Mm -hmm. it seems that, you know, salvation was an individual sort of decision-based thing. And so it's, and it's future oriented. It's, you know, what happens when I die versus what is the gospel as the kind of proclamation of the kingdom for here and now and like a life of abundance and justice and equity and mercy. Right. Right. Like, how do we walk into that now? Yeah versus you know that this is kind of my golden ticket like charlie and the chocolate factory that i'm i'm okay yeah and i think it's both i mean i think that you're right that that certain places like certain um expressions of christianity have emphasized one note louder than the other and i think you're right about about white evangelicalism for sure um i I think it's important not to lose that future hope right Right. because it angers us right (laughs) Right. like we we don't want to lose that because everything can be going crazy around us and right. we can still be faithful because we know that, as Paul says, the resurrection of Jesus was the first fruits of our own resurrection. Like it mm-hmm. tells us what's to come. So mm-hmm. it does anchor us in that way. Mm-hmm. And yet, as you point out, that future thing reaches back into our present moment. The kingdom mm-hmm. of God really is near for us to live into, for us to alert our neighbors mm-hmm. to. And, and, and so the pursuit of racial justice for me is one of the ways that we're doing that. Yeah. Uh, by pursuing racial justice, we are alerting our communities, our neighbors, our cities to the fact that the kingdom of God has come near, that there's a new way of living mm-hmm. that's available to us right now, despite the kind of wicked systems that we see around us. Yeah. Help me think through this idea of race. And there's um, an African-American pastor that I was listening to was talking about this, you know, that racism is actually a kind of human construct in that we don't see it in the Bible. So help us understand some of that and maybe even, you know, your use of the word like white Christianity um, and throughout the book. Because I just imagine many people who, for whom this is a new conversation can feel a little bit worried about some of these conversations. And so that's why we're having it. You know, we're not going to move forward if we're not able to even have good conversations. So yeah. Could you help us? One of the things I, I think is so important for those of us who are Christians is that we, we don't have to be afraid of these conversations, yeah. right? Like we, yeah. we might not see eye to eye on everything, but as those whose faith is in Jesus, who is the very embodiment of truth, you know, we, we have a, a center strong enough, I think, yeah. to, to have complicated uh, conversations. Right. Um, so here's, here's, I think, a few things I would want to say. Yes, I think that African-American pastor is absolutely right. We don't find race in the Bible because race right. has not been invented yet, right? right? Um, ethnicity had been, culture right. had been, nations had been, and a lot of that is God intended, right? God creates a, a good world mm-hmm. that is meant to to influence us as we Mm -hmm. care for that world. And theologians have different ways of talking about this. Um, Race comes along, and we can get into some of the the history if you want. I try to do some of that in the book. But, but, you know, know, four, five hundred years ago, depending on where you want to kind of pinpoint it, as this confluence of different events, you have you kind of have the Enlightenment, which yeah. is kind of causing Europeans to, to categorize their world and yeah. create hierarchies. You have European uh, kind of colonial expansion and, and settlerism, which uh, is bringing European people into contact with new people, new places, and they're they're bringing their hierarchies with them. You also, mm-hmm. unfortunately, for those of us who are Christians, and we need to admit this, 
have a, a, a kind of a warped theology which had downplayed the Jewishness of Jesus and kind of made right. Jesus into more of a European frame, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, which then centered Europeanness so that rather than seeing ourselves as the welcomed outsiders grafted into the body of Christ, yeah, yeah. We, we saw ourselves, we kind of had remade Jesus in our own image. So we saw ourselves as the insiders by which other people could be judged. So that's a really quick history to say like right. that's that's this whirlwind that's kind of happening yeah. and out of that comes what we understand to be race today where we take certain arbitrary biological features and we say now we can categorize you by those features mm-hmm. and we can tell you what's most important about you and this is not a, a neutral organization like oh it's right. interesting you look like this and I look like this right, yeah. but it has a purpose behind it it's to yeah. place some people higher on that hierarchy and some people lower mm-hmm. uh, it's to privilege some and it's to exploit other people Mm -hmm. so uh and then the real lament for those of us who are white that we have to acknowledge is that this was always meant to privilege those of us who are white right always meant to put us higher on that Mm -hmm. hierarchy Mm -hmm. and so when i'm talking about white christianity i'm talking about those of us who would be identified as white in our racialized culture um whether we thought critically about that or not right kind of beside the point um and and the then the, the churches that we inhabit are mostly white uh, mm-hmm. demographically and so thus culturally as well. Right. And I go into some of the cultural elements, the yeah. ways we elevate individualism relations, mm-hmm. you know, some mm-hmm. of those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the hard pill for us to swallow. That's the bitter pill for us to swallow. But I think until we we can be clear about some of that historical stuff, yeah. uh, we're always going to be kind of caught in this loop, right? Yeah, um, yeah. But once we can tell the truth about that history, I actually think there's some real creative possibilities that present themselves. Mm. Yeah, work out some of those creative possibilities for us, you know, and maybe what, are, you know, what's some of the pathways through, like you're talking about, this idea of lament being one, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so again, I'm all, I think Christians, we tell the truth. We tell the truth about everything. We want to tell the truth about Jesus. We want to tell the truth about our own sinfulness and need for salvation um particularly for this project white christians i'm hopeful will also come to tell the truth about Mm -hmm. what it means to be white what it means to have privileges associated to us whether we asked for them or expected them or not um, to inhabit a a country that that has been racialized and has done a lot of damage to particular people and communities Mm -hmm. as we get to to that truth here's so one of the creative possibilities is yes. that we start to grow in spiritual maturity mm-hmm. um, that that we expand our capacity to know the truth and tell the truth and not to be overcome by the truth i don't know if you've experienced this but oftentimes in conversations with white people about race mm-hmm. one of those responses to feel a lot of shame yeah um and to and you know to start to say well think things like well, well you know i never own slaves or right. i i don't have a racist bone in my body or i have a black friend or right. you know there's a way of kind of deflecting the conversation mm-hmm. and that's not a spiritually mature response right a spiritually mature response would be to say well let me sit with this let me consider yeah. like let me be confessional in my posture to this mm-hmm. are there areas where the spirit can search my heart so i think by telling the truth mm-hmm. there's a spiritual mm-hmm. maturity that starts mm-hmm. to present itself mm-hmm. um i think another creative possibility is that we start to see what we missed right so Many times over the years, I've talked with white pastors and and they'll say, I I love the idea of racial reconciliation. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it's great what you're doing at your church or in the city, but (laughs) our church is mostly white, you know, or my suburb is mostly white. And so there's not a lot I can do. Yeah. Um, And and I think that this reframing shifts that to saying, Mm -hmm. actually, you know, white pastor in a white town, you're at the center of this good work. Mm. You have an amazing opportunity. 
framed in discipleship to lead your people into greater and greater solidarity with the rest mm-hmm. of the body of Christ. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. right now, many of us who are white Christians are more accurately understood by our race than by our faith. You know, right. Politically, we can be more easily organized by race than right. by faith, right? Yeah, yep. uh, So, we have more in common with white non-Christian people oftentimes than right. Christians of color. Like, right. what, a, what a tragedy that would yeah. be, that is in yeah. the body of Christ. So, yeah. an- again, another creative possibility. Can you imagine white Christians who, who find themselves having more and more in common with sisters and brothers in, in Christ who share their faith, even if they don't share their, their race? Right. And what sorts of possibilities that might that lead to? You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. ways of serving together, ways of, you know, loving communities together, way, pr- ways of proclaiming the gospel together. Mm-hmm. So, I, I just think that mm. there's a whole world that kind of presents itself yeah. as we begin to, to reimagine some of this. Yes, you're really presenting a hopeful posture. I think so. It, it doesn't feel hopeful at first, but I mean, hope always comes on the other side of something really painful. And as Christians, we understand this, right? Like right. our hope is rooted in crucifixion. The, the moment <laughs> yeah. of most profound despair and loss, uh, the moment where it seems that evil has won the day forever, mm-hmm. That's the moment of our mm-hmm. hope as Christian people. Mm-hmm. So I actually think we're we're built for this, right? As Christians to say, mm-hmm. we we don't have to content ourselves with American optimism. We don't yeah. have to content ourselves with easy solutions to make ourselves feel better. We actually, inhabited by the Holy Spirit, are able to sit mm-hmm. in those hard places, to yeah. lament those painful things, to confess our own sinful complicity when it's apparent, mm-hmm. and expect that on the other side of that, there's resurrection, mm-hmm. always. Yeah. Such good news, but yes, so. painful, right? And it feels like death. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it does. Yeah. That's really because does. it involves right a death of ourselves yes, it does. in in all things. Um, poke a little bit about around why we have been so reticent, maybe even to enter into these conversations. I've thought about that a lot. I'm not sure I have a great answer. My, here's my hunch. Starting points are fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, my hunch. So, so, so I'm, the denomination that I'm a part of is called the Evangelical Covenant Church, and. Yeah. Uh, we are responsible for probably the most famous white Jesus portrayal there is. It's called the the Head of Christ. It's painted by Warner Salmon. Um, many people will like when you picture white Jesus. This is what comes into your head. Mm-hmm. Um, so on the one level, it's like okay, that's a little odd, you know, um, <laughs> that 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 one portrayal has become so universal. And we could certainly get into that. But what's interesting to me about that, what I think that can be a window too, is the way that our white identity has gotten. Uh, entangled with our Christian identity. Mm-hmm. And we kind of hinted at this a little bit earlier in the way that we kind of remade Jesus into our to our own image. So I think on a level that we're probably not consciously reflecting on, there's a fear that if we start to kind of take apart this white identity or to question it, that that's somehow reflects on our faith hmm. that somehow these these two i would add in some instances a, a form of uh you know real strong uh, kind of patriotism almost right. nationalism, nationalism right in, in, yeah, in, yeah, in yeah. some in some quarters right but for for many of us this white identity and our christian identity just kind of go hand in hand 
And so to, so to start questioning one makes the other feel really, really uh, fraught. I, I think this is why it's, it's actually really important for white Christians to be in some way connected to the, the, the wider body of Christ in all of this, mm-hmm. because we need to be reminded and we need to see that it's very, very possible to love Jesus, to follow Jesus, and to pursue racial justice at the same time. Right. That it, it yeah. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I think, There's probably no, I better think answers yeah. to that, but it's a good no. I think it's a good start to the sense that if I start unraveling and pull the thread here, what else is going to unravel? We'll be right back with the rest of our interview. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So. Whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. And here's the rest of my interview with David Swanson. And there's something about the way that white Christianity gets expressed that really privileges um, safety and security and comfort. And this is the opposite of all that, right? This feels a little (laughs) risky. It's certainly uncomfortable. And so I think in that way, our discipleship has not prepared us for these conversations. And again, for me, this is why discipleship is really important in this, Mm -hmm. in this whole process. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about place. So, um, Mm -hmm. I read a book two years ago, Finding Holy in the Suburbs and the kind of idols of suburbia that I Mm -hmm. really worked with, um, in the first half of the book were safety, busyness, individualism, and consumerism, um, which are really just wider kind of idols of Western Mm -hmm. life. Um, but they, they seem particularly big um, in suburban contexts. So, on the one hand, I'd love to hear the ways in which, I mean, and so many suburbs are different from one another. Um, And so, to just, you know, say that suburbia is like it is in the movies, of course, is not how things are. But, you know, what what do we do, you know, if we do live in a space of comfort or safety, and yet we know that the gospel hasn't called us to comfort or safety, um, you know, how do we work towards racial reconciliation? How do we reckon with our whiteness? Um, what does that look like in suburban spaces, maybe? Yeah, I love that question. My, my wife and I lived in a very affluent suburb for five years uh here in the chicagoland area and i wrestled with that hard and i can't say that i ever i what i ended up saying and i promise you this, <laughs> I mean, this is true why i wrote a book i guess yeah <laughs> i wish you had written your book for me back then i would have yeah. read it it would have been yeah. very helpful yeah. for me um but but what i said actually back then is that i didn't i didn't feel like i was spiritually mature enough to stay in the suburbs oh that's a good line i, I like really it. felt like i think i'm not sure i have what it takes to sort of uh, you know live out the particularities of of following Jesus 
in a culture that really prioritizes everything that you just described. And that, that was my experience, yeah. what you said just there, those, those kind of characteristics of it. And it's not only in suburbia, right? Right. But I think you're right. It kind of gets elevated. It's, yeah. It's, it's the water, you know, that you're swimming. Yeah. In. Yeah. 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 So I love your question about place. I think place yeah. is really, really important. And so if I can kind of backtrack a little yeah. bit here, I really think that God's intention for us is a, is a closeness to place. Mm-hmm. I think God's creation is good. I think it's still latent with God's intention to form people and to form communities. And this is the real tragedy of race. Race detaches us from place, right? Mm. Like, like if, if place is God's intention, race mm. comes along, it's kind of a, a it's kind of a tower to ba- a, a Babel kind of situation, mm. right? Where we say, w- we know better. So, right. so no longer does creation have that power. Now, this categorization of our own making has the most power to mm. determine who you are, what your value is, and, and, and your use mm-hmm. to our, our broader society. Mm. And so one of the, I think, really countercultural things that Christians can do is to reprioritize place wherever that place is. Mm-hmm. Um, and suburbia is no different than any other place. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, you know, suburbia is not somehow more God forsaken than any other place, <laughs> right. Right? right? It's yeah. more difficult, I think. Um, so like in my neighborhood, it's not hard to find the history of what right. happened before, right? Like that's right. pretty available. Books have been written about my neighborhood, about you know, South Side of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Suburbia, in a sense, kind of tries to create a, a historical place. Right. And so the work is harder there mm-hmm. to find out some of that history. But I would start by asking questions about what Native American people were right. here, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. do we know those stories? Do we know who they mm-hmm. are? Do we know... Um, you know whether any of those of their descendants are still are, are still here. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of white people assume that our places have always been racially segregated, and that's usually not the case. There is there's some pretty disturbing histories of racial exclusion, either because of federally backed housing policies, redlining, right. etc., yep. or through racial exclusion. There's there's some cities that have you know racial codes or had housing codes that that discriminate against people. Mm-hmm. All of that information is available. You can find all that. Yeah. And yeah. I encourage your listeners to actually do that work. Yeah. I was in Spokane, Washington a couple of years ago, and there was a sense like, yeah, we're okay. You know, it's mostly white. It's kind of all been that way. And so I was speaking three days in a row. So that night I went back to my room. And I just did a Google search. Yeah. They really quickly found a few you know, newspaper articles about like all of these uh, housing deeds that yeah. still had racial discrimination language in them to this very mm-hmm. day. Mm-hmm. So I think knowing that history, it, it, you know, we realize we're not absolved, that we actually have a responsibility Mm -hmm. um, to to nurture the places that we're in, to make Mm -hmm. them hospitable places, to allow their formational possibility Mm -hmm. um, to to, to grow in our own lives a little bit. Um, Yeah, I actually think there's a lot to that question about place Mm -hmm. for white people who we kind of see ourselves as hovering above a place, like kind of transient, right? Yeah. Uh, so it very counter I, I think it's very counterintuitive, but I think there's a lot of good possibility there. Yeah, I know. And I'm like, ooh, and go spend some time researching and reading again. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Which I just was actually doing earlier this morning and going, Oh, it's fascinating. So And yeah, what if I the think church did that, right? Like what if, right. what if the church became the expert in their place, you know, mm-hmm. where where mm-hmm. if you needed to know the history or if you needed to know some why questions about the place. 
the Christians really saw ourselves as the caretakers of the place, mm. the stewards, stewards of that place. Stewards, right. right? I've heard some of those language what a, before. What a fascinating <laughs> possibility. Yeah. Way back in the beginning. Yeah, yeah. I love that, though. I love that way to think about it now. That's really, it's exciting. Yeah, so what are some of the, maybe is there a story kind of just where you have seen the hopefulness of your own place and your own multiracial congregation um, to encourage us to do some of this hard work and these hard questions and these these moments of research and you know even those moments of shame. You know, mm-hmm. um, what do we do with that? How do we get to the hope? Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I mean, our church is is African American, Asian American, and white, and so people kind of come at different points in their own journey of this right. and their own experience of their own discipleship. Um, but I will say for, for those who come to the church, mostly white, some Asian Americans as well, who are earlier on in this journey, there often is some of that shame at right. the beginning. And sometimes it's this feeling like, man, why did I not know any of this? You mm-hmm. know, and How come I didn't see the connections between my, my discipleship to Jesus mm-hmm. and you know, the way that my sisters and brothers in Christ have been suffering you know, mm-hmm. over, over generations. So, so, and sometimes that gets to be too much for people and they, they look for a, a more comfortable path. Um, mm-hmm. And I understand that. But for those who stay, for those who choose to sit in that, um, I've seen a, a, amazing sort of growth and transformation in, in, in people's lives where they they find that they have this family that they just never knew about. Mm. They find that they have they have sisters and brothers and aunties and uncles, uh, you know, mentors in the faith whose experience of this country has been very different than theirs and yet who love them and who care for them and who want the best for them and who they can then, you know, do, do the same with. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that about that really hard passage where Jesus says, you know, anyone who follows me is going to have to leave behind sister, mother, mm-hmm. brother, father. That's, mm-hmm. I actually think that's true. I think that mm-hmm. there are times where following to Jesus requires that. But the flip side of that is that, you know, we are invited into this new family mm-hmm. and, what we proclaim when we proclaim the gospel is that the shed blood of Jesus is is thicker and stronger than any biological blood, mm-hmm. and that we are now bound more closely to people who are not related to us biologically, right? That That's the gospel that we preach. That's the mm-hmm. body of Christ that we proclaim. But most of us have just never really got to experience that. Mm-hmm. And so to get to experience that, right, to find yourself in relationship and solidarity mm-hmm. within the body of Christ is a is really a transformational experience mm-hmm, for people. Mm-hmm. And it makes the, this gospel that we proclaim, as you were saying earlier, it brings that into the present, right? It makes mm-hmm. the kingdom of God tangible and mm-hmm. livable in a way that I think most white Christians have just not had the opportunity to experience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. So tell us, what are some kind of formational habits, you know, either you do personally or you've kind of worked in your congregation as a communal mm-hmm. habit that can really form us into the body of Christ, you know, and, and yeah. into, I mean, you, because you talked about both, like if you're in a multiracial congregation, this is kind of what, what you're signing yeah. up for. But even if you're not, if, you know, if your Absolutely. town is majority white, like what are the formational habits that help us walk on this path? Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. So that was, that's the last, you know, those, those habits that you're talking about is the last two thirds of the book. Each chapter is a different discipleship practice. And I think about these corporate leaks. I think that's really important for those of us who have been so steeped in individualism. Uh, We can't individualize our way out of this one, right? No, no. It has to be done together. And Mm -hmm. so uh, each of those seven practices is a different corporate practice. And I really had in mind as I wrote this, the, you know, the, the tired pastor who like reads a book and feels like, oh, great. I have to do everything different. For now, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I just those books are not helpful for me, and so yeah. I wanted to try to think about things that we're already doing. So, like yeah. the Lord's Supper. Um, yeah, I think about, I have a whole chapter on children's ministry, mm-hmm. uh, things that are already happening in our churches that we could say, what if we reimagine the ways that we did this, the ways that we thought about these things? What possibility for formation exists already that we just mm-hmm. haven't availed ourselves mm-hmm. of. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that's that's my hope that yeah. that somebody could look at this and say, okay, you know, for example, we already do children's ministry. Right. But here's a few frames that we could look at this a little bit differently. Here's mm-hmm. a few uh, ways that we could think about how we shape parents as they disciple their children. One mm-hmm. quick example of this. Yeah. Um, when, when I do some racial reconciliation work, um, we'll ask our, our, our participants who are usually white and black, though sometimes other people of color as well. Mm-hmm. When did you first realize that race mattered? And, and the black participants will generally say I was four years old, five years old. Uh, the white participants like, well, I took a, you know, ethnic studies class in college and that's right, when it, right. and there's a couple things going on here. One the you know the the African American participants had parents or, or caregivers who realized this child needs to understand how race works for their own good. They're going to yes. face racism, so they need to understand that. So there's a kind of pragmatic thing there. But on another level, those parents are discipling their children. Right? right. They're saying you're going to be lied to about yourself in this country. You, this country is going to try mm. to, to to diminish you, to demean you, to make you think less of yourself, to 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 uh, lessen the image of God in you. And all of that is a lie. And so we're going to tell you the truth. We're going to disciple you in the truth. Now, white parents, on the other hand, because um, you know white children are not kind of threatened in the same ways, we, we don't do that. Instead, right. we have a high value on innocence and we want to protect our children's mm, innocence. Mm-hmm. And so we don't have that kind of practical impulse. Mm-hmm. What that means, though, is that we are not discipling our children. We are letting the world disciple our children. And research shows that children take on the understandings of the culture very, very quickly when it comes to race. They, they mm-hmm. intuit the racial hierarchy very, very quickly. They're not just organizing by different shades of skin color. They're actually assigning meaning to that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a way that's really sad, but uh, we have to tell the truth about. So, so for example, yeah. what, what if a, a white church acknowledged that? and said, we are going to disciple our children, our white children, and we're going to equip our parents who have no memory of this themselves. They don't have a memory of how to do this, right? So as a church, we can help our our parents. Mm -hmm. We can equip our parents to know how to have these tender but really important conversations as they disciple their own children Mm -hmm. to have a different experience of what it means to to follow Jesus in Mm -hmm. this kind Mm -hmm. of racialized society. Right. So good. And, you know, of course, like that goes into so many different things, right? Than just simply issues of race. Um, right. Like yeah. that often, you know, in a majority culture, right, we're not, we just are not able to see the ways in which we are being formed and shaped. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Yep. That's exactly so right. And sometimes we've recognized that and been intentional. And right. then other times we have these, right. these massive blind spots. And right. 
I happen to think this is our, our biggest blind spot for some of the reasons we, we talked about, but it's not mm-hmm. inevitable. We, we right. could do it differently. Yes. Yes. So what's your hope for this book and the conversations that it starts? So I have, I had particular people in mind. I don't know when you wrote your book, if yeah, this is the case for, for sure. you. But yeah. yeah. So I had, I had a few friends in mind who I love who are pastoring in you know, small towns or, or suburbs and churches are mostly white. They actually care about racial reconciliation. You know, I, I know there are, there are some white Christians who just really aren't interested. And this book is probably not going to change their minds. <laughs> yeah. But I think there's actually a whole lot of white Christians who, if you were to ask them, they'd say, yeah, I think that's important. I see yeah. it in scripture. I just don't think I have a role to play. Right. That's who I was writing to. Mm. And so in my perfect world, those friends would read this book and say, oh my goodness, this is really good. This is yeah. going to be difficult. It's going to be challenging. But the ministry of reconciliation is for me too. It's yeah. for us too. And mm-hmm. by, by discipling our church in these ways, by rethinking, reimagining how we disciple our church, mm-hmm. we are drawing closer and closer to our sisters and brothers in Christ. We are, we are joining them in this kind of lived and sacrificial solidarity that bears beautiful witness to the kingdom of God and to the gospel. Um, if that happens, I will be. That would be great. Really, <laughs> I love really, it. Really yeah. Oh, well, I hope, I hope and pray that, yes, the message continues to go out. It's hit the shelves at a very opportune and needed time. So thank yeah. you for, thank you for writing it. Thank you. Yeah. And before we finish up, I would love to know what your laundry routine is in your house as we connect the dots between things that matter and everyday life like laundry. We have two boys who mm-hmm. are 11 and almost six, mm-hmm. which means we have lots of laundry in <laughs> yes. our house. Yep. <laughs> We're in a, in a three-bedroom apartment here in Chicago, and so yeah. our laundry, our washing machine and dryer are the stackable kind, and they're right in yep. our, our kitchen, which is very convenient. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so the, probably the most interesting thing about our laundry habits are that we have almost completely stopped using our dryer as of about, I don't know, six or nine months ago. Okay. Now our apartment is like a hundred years old, so it has the radiator heating. Right. So we have an advantage in that in the wintertime, everything dries out super, super <laughs> right. fast. Yeah. It actually takes longer to dry stuff in the summer because it's pretty humid here. But, yeah. but so we have these, this huge Ikea drying rack yeah, that yeah. just kind of is out all the time for the most yeah. part because we do laundry so regularly and it's always got stuff hanging over it and draped over it but the really good thing is that the boys are now old enough where they can't reach everything but they can at least take the laundry out hang it up they can put their own laundry away so that feels like a lot of progress (laughs) i hear you i'm like you know once you get out of diapers and they're able to like participate in the chores of the family milestones It feels like light at the end of the tunnel. Absolutely. It's so good. Well, thank you Absolutely. so much for being here. And it's been such a pleasure. You're Thanks welcome. For sharing I, I, your heart. I appreciate the conversation. Thank yeah. you. Ashley. You're welcome. Friends, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with David Swanson. One thing I really enjoyed was the way in which he's able to actually make this a discipleship issue. Often we think of these hot button topics like race as a partisan issue or something that divides us, but rather if we think about it as a discipleship issue, then we actually then say that the biggest story that we belong to is God's kingdom, and that the gospel is the way in which we can actually have unity across diversity. 
So I hope you're encouraged. Go ahead and pick up a copy of his book, Rediscipling the White Church. And before we close, I want to leave you with one small step to take into your everyday life. And it's simply to give yourself, instead of procrastinating, scrolling through social media, take some of that procrastination time and turn it into a little research project. Just simply take 10 minutes, do a few Google searches about the place in which you live and find out maybe what were the first people that lived there. And rather than see our neighborhoods and our streets and our suburbs and our cities as something we've created, or even something that's relatively recent, to begin to dig into the history of our places helps us see that we actually build on foundations that are longer and wider and more diverse than maybe our everyday experience. I hope that will enable you to ask some good questions about where you live and what are the forces that have shaped the places that you belong to. So ask some good questions. Feel free to tag me on social media at AA Hales. And if you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to the podcast. It helps other people find us. And we are hopeful that this season about living faithfully in in an upside down world will be helpful to you as you create conversations across difference during this political season. Take care, friends. Remember, big things matter, but so does the laundry. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.